Welcome to another RSK Centre for Sustainability Excellence podcast. I'm Dr. Robert Charnock. I'm a board member here at the RSK Centre for Sustainability Excellence and also director of the Metis Institute for Climate Strategy. And we are delighted because right now we have Dr. Stephanie Ray visiting us in Singapore, who is RSK's chief sustainability officer. And am I right that it's formally managing director of Nature Positive? Yes, I managed to hand over one at least of the hats that I've been wearing. So Nature Positive then, perfect name for a company. Tell us a bit, where did that idea come from and what's happening now? Well, it's it's been a long time coming, uh, Nature Positive as a business. We started doing the kind of work that Nature Positive takes on, which is looking at the business impacts and relationship to biodiversity. We started doing that kind of work probably about 10 years ago, but we did a few really lovely pieces of work, but that never really went further. And clients would say, oh, yes, I understand that I need to do that. I can see how that's really important, but I'm not sure my board will agree to it yet. Or mm. I've really got to focus on climate at the moment and get my head around that. And and it really, it's taken probably 10 years until the point where it's finally reached the boardroom agenda. And people are going, oh, wow, yeah, I really do need to get my head around that. I'm starting to see how my business relates to to biodiversity, to the natural environment after all. And so really about two years ago, we incorporated the business at RSK. Um, It was was just me to begin with. And and over the last couple of years, we've grown, I think we now, well, we've incorporated um, some staff in, in carbon as well and sustainability. So there are now about 45 of us. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's growing quite rapidly. I think from my own take, the biodiversity is one of these topics, like you say, is really gaining momentum. It feels like there's that critical mass that maybe we felt around 2015 with climate change, with the Paris Agreement, maybe. But I mean, for people who aren't as familiar with it, could you just give us a very quick introduction to what is biodiversity? Of course. Yeah, biodiversity is one of those difficult terms. I was never sure about it at the Earth Summit in 1992. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I've I've still had a fairly ambivalent relationship with the word ever since then. There was a survey, I think it was about five years ago in the UK, um, of public attitudes. uh, And they asked people what they felt about biodiversity. And the first question was, what is biodiversity? And it was a multiple choice question. And the most commonly selected answer was a washing powder. So... (laughs) Clearly, it, the, the word isn't resonating with the general public. And, and wherever possible, we like to use the word nature as a substitute to just, you know, explain broadly what we feel uh, we're talking about. But, but biodiversity is helpful as a scientific term because it, it implies that broad diversity, the whole range of everything that's living on the planet, essentially. So um, from marine benthos in the oceans through to us, and um, and everything in between and all the genetic variation between and within species. So it really is a, a term that tries to encompass the, the living bit around the edge of the planet. Okay. Okay. So biodiversity itself is really like the, the core of the topic. And if, if I'm thinking about nature positive, mm. in climate change, people talk about net zero. So we're not talking about nature zero in this case. What's, <laughs> what's nature positive different? How is it different to net zero? Nature positive is essentially a term that means we've we've stopped this trend of loss. You know, whereas it's the opposite direction to climate change. We're we're trying to stop um, we're, we're trying to stop negative increases in the climate, 
Um, we're, we're looking at nature loss and how at the moment we're losing species diversity. We have about a million species globally at risk of extinction and that those extinction rates are increasing at a rate that we've never seen before. So we've got this, this problem of, of, of losing species, of losing diversity. And once you do that, ecosystems start to collapse because the interrelationships between those species and their environment they, they will fall away and you get to a point where those environments don't really function anymore. And the importance of, of that functioning is of all the goods and services that a healthy, well-functioning environment provides for us. Things like clean water, clean air, a survivable climate for one. Um, and so essentially what we're trying to do is bend that curve of biodiversity loss back upwards and yes, we'll get to a position of no net loss first, where we're level again, and then we take that curve up into the positive. So we're seeing a, a net beneficial impact on nature from human activity rather than a net negative impact. So it's a difficult term to apply, nature positive, because sometimes people try to apply it to a single action. Here's, one, here's a nature positive action I'm taking. And I think that can be slightly misleading sometimes. Mm. You know, what we're talking about in the same way that we talk about net zero is the overall balance. Let's look at the whole picture of everything we're doing uh, and compare overall, are we doing more good than harm? And that's the point we're trying to get to. Okay, okay. That's a really good explanation. I, I do want to talk more like specifically about APAC, but one thing I have to ask from your explanation is, the way you frame biodiversity is really like an underpinning of every of society, of the economy, of everything. Is that just your bias? Because this is your area. <laughs> Very biased. Yes. Um, no. No. It's kind of the science. <laughs> it's kind of the science too, because essentially, when when you look at the, the the goods and services that we rely on from the natural environment, you know, food, water, timber, fibers. All of these things, they're just provided by nature. And at the moment, and, and entirely through the history of, of human exploitation of the planet, we've assumed that those items are there free at the point of delivery for us to harvest. And we may construct some economic system around it, but we assume that nature provides it for free. So if we want to pull fish out of the sea, we might argue with each other over fishing quotas, but ultimately we expect the sea to keep providing fish. And, um, and you know, human population is at a level where that simply isn't possible. It, the seas, as they exist at the moment, can't provide enough food for everyone. We need to manage them better. And as these problems continue, as we continue to not invest in, in biodiversity, to not protect these ecosystem services, we'll see the supply of some of these goods that we rely on fall away. And, and that's really what this, this business focus on biodiversity and nature positive is all about. It's, it's a, you know, a very sensible approach to looking at risks that affect you. It's not, a, it, it's not a philanthropic approach to conservation or something like that. It's a real understanding that, well, wherever you are, on this planet, what you need comes from this planet, even if it's simply, you know, a, a, a survivable climate and water to drink and food. 
you're going to be relying on those. Your workforce are going to be relying on those. So wherever you are, somewhere, your business will have a connection to nature. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, that's really, really obvious. You know, if you're an agricultural business, for example, if you're a fisheries business, if you're a mining business, the relationships are really simple. For other organisations, those connections to nature might not be immediately apparent. They might be way up in your supply chain and not something that you interact with on a daily basis mm-hmm. but you're still going to rely on it because if if changes in ecosystems affect those suppliers of yours it may for example mean that a commodity you rely on is not available anymore mm-hmm. or it's available only at twice the price you're used to paying for it <laughs> yeah, well, it, and it's, it's I mean, coming on to supply chain i think that really brings into view the apac relevance of this mm-hmm. when you know, you know speaking around different countries across Southeast Asia, the sense is really this is where the heart of global supply chains exists. So if you're saying for some people it might not be a concern because it's upstream in the supply chain, well, that's where we are, no? I mean, what is the APAC version of biodiversity is the question. But it's... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. APAC is a hugely significant area for this, partly... Um, it's a bit of a biodiversity hotspot. It's a really biodiverse region. There are there are six, I think, official biodiversity hotspots in Asia um, that are recognised globally as being important centres for biodiversity. Um, there are a whole host of, um, of of sort of key biodiversity issues here. So things like, you know, there's a few developing countries with, with not such good infrastructure for dealing with waste, for example. So we tend to have more of a problem with plastic pollution and, and how to dispose of single-use plastic in the region, which is heavily used in the region. Um, and, you know, we have uh, issues around protection of, of valued areas. So one of the one of the aims internationally is to is to protect more areas for the benefit of nature conservation and and asia i think is is ranked quite low at the moment in terms of the the percentage of land area there's a lot of land area in fairness (laughs) but in the percentage of land area that is protected for nature conservation so there are all of these these themes playing out and then as you say you know here we're talking about um an agricultural uh, and horticultural supply chain that that supports a lot of businesses all over the rest of the world, and how how are we responding to the biodiversity crisis? There are going to be increasing demands and inquiries to businesses in this region about well, where is that coming from, and how sustainable can I claim my product is? And you know the region needs to be equipped to to deal with that and to start to understand um, how to respond and how they can deliver their, their their products in a more environmentally sustainable way. Mm. So in, in some senses, people might think if, if there's biodiversity loss and this is a crisis for the world, it's really a societal issue, potentially one that citizens and the government need to get involved in tackling. But when we talk, it seems to also be a strong emphasis on business and investors. So what's the kind of case for businesses paying attention to this or investors really thinking about the risks of biodiversity loss? It's always interesting, isn't it? There's a real there's a real danger with issues like this, and I'm sure we went through it with climate twenty years ago. But where does the responsibility lie? Should this be with government? Should this be with the consumer? And there's a real resistance to to pushing responsibility to the individual consumer and society. 
um, and rightly so. Consumers make the best of the choices that are available to them and their choices are quite heavily edited in many cases. But, but ultimately, businesses are the ones who are profiting from the exploitation of natural resources. Um, and yet they've been taking those resources that are global commons, effectively, they're available to all of us, businesses by their nature and perfectly legitimately within their operating models have been taking a large proportion of, of those resources, um, adding value and making their living from it. And we as a society have never asked them to account for that. We've never mm. asked them to account for taking, if you like, more than a fair share of what belongs to everybody, the natural environment. And so I think what we're seeing is a, is a kind of awakening of a, a different way of thinking about that and recognising that, well, no, that isn't fair, particularly where the people who are running short of those resources are some of the more vulnerable people in the world. You know, so we're, this, this change in thinking is not just around nature, as we traditionally think of it, a flora and fauna. It's about, well, how do we use resources? Mm. How does this play to the to the climate issues? How does this play out with the issues of inequalities? You know, how are we able to manage resources better while supporting indigenous people? And and so I think it's it's the awakening of a broader agenda for business of thinking, how can they operate responsibly? And how can they, rather than think of this as, oh no, there's another thing I have to think about alongside climate, uh, rather just think of it as a broadening of how they think about their responsible operating model. I do wonder if, if biodiversity has a really key advantage over climate in the sense that we, we, we kind of take for granted our connections with nature, but we feel it on a day-to-day -day basis. It's kind of more tangible than talking about greenhouse gas concentrations in some respect. But what's interesting is what you're describing is the developments recently are really about not taking that for granted and creating the frameworks and the structures we need for businesses to say, well, what's my impact on biodiversity? But what also, why is it integral to my own business model, yeah. I suppose, yeah. going forward? Um, so I think, you know, if you imagine people listening to this and thinking, oh, right, biodiversity might be relevant to my day job, to my work, <laughs> to my week to week. I mean, for those people, what do they need to know now? What's been happening over the last two or three years that are really, to you, the key developments that anybody needs to understand for that basic understanding of the biodiversity debate. Okay, there's there's been a lot happening. It's been it's been a fairly fast moving on, in some areas agenda. I'd say if you look at the EU, um, the EU's been developing guidelines on responsible business, on on um, corporate responsibility, sustainability reporting. Um, it's also been producing um, regulations on avoidance of deforestation and it's now adopted those regulations so it's it's illegal to import any material um, which is a product of deforestation effectively so that's not just timber and pulp and paper that's any kind of forest risk commodity so pr uh, products or commodities that are typically found to be grown in land where forest has been cleared so we're talking things like palm oil uh, soy, cocoa, coffee, leather, tobacco, products like that. So it has wide-ranging implications, not just for um, businesses within the EU, 
but businesses that supply any companies in the EU. Um, and, and being able to develop that chain of custody mm. so that you actually are confident and can demonstrate where the products that you're using originated from in the world. And you can see that that's, that's the sustainably sourced product that you asked for has come all the way from wherever it was grown in, say, Indonesia to wherever you are in, say, Luxembourg. Um, is going to be a real challenge for businesses to get to grips with. So I'd say supply chain is my first issue, looking at those issues around deforestation and other sustainability risks. But then probably most importantly, from a a nature conservation point of view, in December last year, we had um, the long-awaited meeting COP15, which will confuse anyone who listens to your podcast and goes, hang on, aren't we up to 28? (laughs) (laughs) But this is the the biodiversity COP, which is a sort of parallel exercise to the climate COPs. They meet every other year rather than every year, which is why the numbers aren't quite as high. Uh, And and COP15 in Montreal was a, a, a significant event because the parties, 190 or so countries, signed an agreement that we've been looking for for quite a while. The COP meeting had been delayed for two years because of the pandemic. Um, And so we finally gained an agreement called the Global Biodiversity Framework, um, which countries recognize a shared vision for uh, a world living in harmony with nature. So having bent that curve on biodiversity loss by 2050, And to deliver that, there are 23 actionable targets, which are all identified as urgent and to be delivered by 2030. So, you know, this was meant to be a decade of ecosystem restoration. Well, you know, we've probably noticed it's already 2023. So we're talking about really seven years to deliver those targets, which is, it it requires incredible change and incredible speed of, of implementation, of getting to grips with it, understanding really what the targets mean at a country level, at a sector level, and moving forward with that agenda. That's, it really sounds like there's momentum right now. So we've got COP15 and the Global Biodiversity Framework with this range of targets behind it, with the increasing awareness around supply chain risks, biodiversity risks throughout the whole supply chain as well. It, it feels like at the moment, if we're in this decade of restoration, the momentum is different to say 10 years ago? I mean, how does it feel? Is it different now? Oh, it's definitely different. It feels a completely different approach. I'm, you know, I'm probably naturally quite optimistic, but I'm (laughs) definitely feeling that, you know, we finally grasped it. You know, it will be difficult. I'm not underestimating the enormity of the challenges in trying to achieve those 23 targets. But I did feel, you know, I, w- I was at COP15 and I, I did feel a genuine excitement in the room that the parties really felt that we were doing something momentous. We were, gonna, we were going to change the world, if you like. Yeah, it, it sounds very familiar. to there, there was a point in time with climate change where the, the conversation shifted and became about it's inevitable that we will regulate this problem. And that was a landmark moment almost because it didn't go from will governments do something to saying, well, the future will be different because of regulation. What we now need to do is figure out how that regulation, what it's going to be and how it will impact us as a business. So I suppose that's the question. If if the momentum has changed, but yet maybe there are businesses that aren't doing anything, what do they need to start doing now? 
Right. I think there are a lot of, of no regrets actions that businesses can take because Yes, a lot of businesses are hanging around going, oh, well, so it'll probably be regulated, so I'll wait for it to be regulated. But ultimately, the problem isn't getting any smaller or easier to tackle. And there are significant advantages to being on the kind of leading wave of getting this right. So the actions I would suggest for any business really are understand where your risks are. You know, this you don't need to wait for for. Dis- mandatory disclosures on biodiversity to come into force to actually look at this because you've already got mandatory requirements to disclose material risks to your business mm-hmm. just by existing as a business there's nothing in there that goes except the biodiversity ones <laughs> you know i'm not i'm not sure that that's what the sec were thinking and and yet businesses do feel obliged feel feel you know able to just ignore those elements of of risks as externalities that they don't understand but you know as we've been discussing those are real risks to your business you know if if an item in your supply chain becomes unavailable or is going to cost twice the price or is so heavily regulated that you're tied up in paperwork for three years then that's a risk to your business and your board ought to be discussing it and your shareholders ought to be made aware of it so i think getting the mindset change that just because these risks are a little bit complicated or sometimes a little bit obscure in our supply chain means we don't have to think about them just isn't an acceptable position anymore. Okay, so so people focus on the risks, focus on understanding the material risk because that's your responsibility anyway. Yes. But if people want to do that specifically with biodiversity, where does the help come from? Is this what we're hearing from TNFD? What's the yeah. what, what can people use to really frame that analysis of biodiversity risk? Yeah. By all means, start using TNFD. The, the Task for? Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, it's a parallel process to, to TCFD that'll be a lot more familiar to people. And it follows a similar sort of process. That said, it the... the Methodology is available in beta format at the moment. We're expecting an, uh, the final version by about September this year. So the methodology is not going to change significantly. If you want to follow that, and you know, I would strongly recommend people do look at it in those terms, then you won't go far wrong. There won't be abortive work. That's not going to be a risk, I don't think. Um, some people take a look at the TNFD methodology and then a look at the size of their business or portfolio and go, I can't do that. I need seven more data analysts. Uh, it, it, it does look quite scary once you do it. And it will be a big piece of work to do for the first time. Mm. If you're not ready to work through that in forensic detail and do it at a very granular level this time around, don't don't use that as an excuse to do nothing. Don't just sit and wait for further regulation because you're possibly just getting deeper and deeper into a risk. What I would recommend you do is that you start by just looking at your business, draw your, draw your business as a little flow diagram on a wall or something and understand what are the key points of interaction between your business and the natural environment. You know, what are the things you rely on? What are the commodities you rely on? What are the processes that go on in your operations that might possibly have some impact on nature? What are the things that you emit 
from your operations that might have an impact on nature. What happens to your products or services? What do people do with them? How do they dispose of them if it's a product at the end of life? Are there any packaging issues? Are there any plastics in that in that whole value chain that we're talking about? And just map out where you think some of the issues might be. And then dig into one of them. Pick the one that between your stakeholders you think is likely to be the most significant, is our most significant issue plastic packaging let's dig into that and see what we can do about plastic packaging right throughout our value chain or if it's water use well let's have a look at where we're operating in water stressed areas and and start with one thing start you know do do the process first to map what you think are the likely issues do a bit of a materiality assessment engage with with some expert advice and with some stakeholders to see where you might concentrate your effort and then just focus in on one thing first, because we need to start making a difference. We haven't got, in seven years, we haven't really got a few years to think about the metrics and a few years to dig up the data. And then, you know, it'll be 15 years before we actually start reversing anything. No, that option's not available. So dig in, find some of the key issues and start restoring nature along those supply lines as quickly as you can. And this is obviously something you've demonstrated or proven with the success of Nature Positive recently. I suppose I'm wondering, is that a European experience or do you see the consulting market and availability of these biodiversity linked advisory services as a global thing that we'll see more and more in APAC as well across, say, Singapore? And you're going to Australia next, aren't you? So yeah. Singapore and Australia, are we going to be seeing this here as well, do you very much so. Yes, it's it's definitely not just a European phenomenon. I mean, we're headquartered in, in the UK uh, at Nature Positive, but our business is pretty much all over the world. Initially, we started with UK clients, but, you know, we ended up looking at their supply chains. So we were already into Asia and, and into Africa. Um, but more recently, inquiries have been coming through from the US, from Asia, from Australia, Fantastic. from organisations who, who really are, are trying to get to grips with this themselves. I mean, I've had a fascinating couple of weeks here in Singapore. Uh, I've met a lot of businesses. I've been to a couple of events and, and given a couple of talks. And I've met an awful lot of, of business people in the area who are you know grappling with this in exactly the same way as our, their counterparts in Europe. Um, and indeed, I've been heartened to find some of them who were looking forward to digging into it with real granularity and, and, and getting on with the detailed analysis rather than just doing that very first shallow dive. Mm. So I think there's huge enthusiasm for this. I mean, we can look out of the window here where we're sitting um, and just look at nature. A fantastic example of urban greening with lots of trees growing on a high-rise building just beside us. And you can see that there is a closeness to nature here and that people do respect that and do want to do something about it. It's part of what makes this area unique. Mm. I do think Singapore is particularly modest when it comes to sustainability. Often a conversation can be, you know, trying to learn, trying to see what's happening elsewhere, but really look around you and the examples of sustainability in action in Singapore are quite remarkable. So it's heartening to hear that you've been hearing this also from the, from the businesses in the region too. Um, I suppose one thing then to ask is, is on that note, what are the real, I suppose, the innovations or the solutions that you've seen that you think will be 
you know, quite monumental in the next, say, decade or two, whether it's in APAC, or maybe what you've seen already in Singapore that you think Europe needs to learn from as well. This doesn't just need to be what to bring to Singapore, but what can Singapore export to the world? Uh, Singapore can definitely export to the world its approach to urban greening, because I, you know, I've I've seen such innovation in high rise here that, you know, we, we don't often see elsewhere. There's real, um, maybe it's because we don't have very high winds in the region that we get to put trees on the top of 70-story buildings. But, um, but they, no, there, there are some, some really good, and the Singapore Green Plan that brings it all together as a country, I think, is really important. More countries could well benefit from, from having that kind of national-level plan for our natural infrastructure, if you like, um, we, it, it's a great thing to see. But the the innovations really in in how we're going to be tackling some of the biodiversity, the elements of the biodiversity crisis, are largely around regenerative agriculture, which I know is one of the interests of of you guys here at the centre. So you know, essentially, one of the big issues is we need to we need to feed an increasing and very large population of what would what would in a traditional ecological setting be considered a top predator um, we've got to we've got to feed them um, and at the moment you know that would really take up more space than we have on the planet to do that so we need to think of, of clever and innovative ways that we can we can farm effectively to feed a population healthily and have nature living alongside that so looking at ways that we can sort of regenerate the soil, stop depleting soils, but, but putting putting back into soils and making sure that we're able to continue producing food. You know, looking more more innovatively at how we farm, so the, some of the new approaches in vertical farming, for example, and making sure that when we do it, we don't tend to see it as this is the space where humans do their thing and then this place over here that's different is the space where nature does its thing yes it's great to have areas of wilderness where we let nature do its thing but ultimately we are part of nature we're not separate to it so we need to learn we need to remember how to live alongside nature and weave nature into the fabric of what we do here rather than trying to keep it separate all the time and i think when we can do that not only will we see benefits for nature but we'll see benefits for human well-being as well you know you've mentioned how how people engage with it how people love to see nature and we have a connection to it but that connection is increasingly getting lost by the large proportion of of the world who live in an urban setting without real access to nature so bringing nature back into the cities and seeing the health and well-being benefits of that I think is is an important part of the educational piece of this journey and I don't underestimate how how difficult that will be in some parts of the world. Now I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here (laughs) Steph I'm sorry but you've been saying we we need to make sure we understand that we are part of nature and our interactions with it. So are you? Is RSK really taking this seriously what is rsk doing on biodiversity because it's all well and good to say businesses need to care and yeah. there are there are projects that can happen yeah are you doing this yourselves we definitely are yes we've recognized the importance of nature for a long time at rsk and various of our project teams are, are actually focused on delivering things like nature-based solutions to climate change soft engineering solutions and so forth 
um, river engineering and, and so these kinds of services that were sort of directly contributing to that. But what we've done in the last year is we've taken stock of what our own impacts and dependencies are on nature. Now, they're not hugely significant. We're not a big manufacturing business or something, but like all businesses, we do have areas where we impact on nature. So we've taken stock of those. Uh, we've, we've developed a target and we've issued a policy that identifies us as being nature positive by 2030 at the latest. And we're at the moment going through the process of TNFD um, so we're looking at all of those impacts and pressures and putting in place mitigation measures for them uh, across our whole portfolio, which is 180 companies oh, wow. at last count. So it's not an insignificant undertaking. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we, we definitely are putting our money where our mouth is, which has been great experience for us in understanding how complex that process can be, which has helped us to help clients do the same process. And I think with an organization like RSKM and, and similar advisory companies, our own direct impacts are quite small, um, but our, our impacts on our clients can be huge and, and beneficial. And you know that's what we really need to focus on in, is being collaborative with these solutions, working with clients, working with, with peer companies and associated professionals that we work alongside and get this message out there and, and help everyone to change because you know seven years isn't long. So Steph, I think this is incredible. What I've, what I've been hearing then is that we're at a point in time where the momentum, you can feel the shift. You can feel the shift because at COP15, we had the Global Biodiversity Framework. We also had the, 20, the targets that come along with that and this sense that by 2030, we really need to have started reversing this problem. Um, and on top of that, we know almost what businesses need to do with first steps. I, lo I love your phrase, the no regrets actions, but also the fact that there are frameworks. There's TNFD, the science-based targets that can all help businesses understand how to take their first steps or second, third steps <laughs> in taking biodiversity seriously as well. So I think there's plenty to digest and plenty more to be watching and reading up on. Um, but I suppose I want to give the floor to you as well. I've asked questions, but what, what do you want to say as almost closing remarks? What should people be paying attention to? Or what's the message you really want to get across? I guess the message I really want to get across is that although biodiversity is complicated and there seems to be a whole mass of data that you're not familiar with yet that you feel you need to get to grips with taking action to benefit biodiversity isn't complicated it's quite simple so you know plant the tree <laughs> compost the waste you know take steps now you know green your building there are lots of small actions that you can start to take on the positive side. Yes, I'm not suggesting that you think you do that and you're done and, you know, you get accused of greenwashing or whatever it might be. But don't wait to have perfect data. Don't wait to have finalised frameworks. Um, you know, engage your staff because, because it is a topic that everyone's engaged with, as, as you've said. Everyone understands the concept of nature. So engage your staff, engage the other people in the building or the business part that you're located on and do something together to make local improvements for nature because even if they're not massively significant in terms of weighing up your overall biodiversity footprint what you're doing is starting that 
education and engagement process. You're getting people on board, you're getting people to understand what they have to do, and you'll be making your first steps a little bit easier. So yeah, that's it really. Just don't wait, plant a tree. Dr. Stephanie Ray, thank you for visiting us in Singapore and thank you for your time today. Thank you.